You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment. Deepening your practice, it's August 26, 2021. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, and tonight we're going to talk about equanimity uh, practice uh, as the equanimity practice from the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes. This is a a little different uh, if you're an old shinhead and the way that he talks about equanimity, which is really about this allowingness. And uh, in equanimity, the... um, the, in the Brahma Viharas, what we're really talking about is, is uh, I think, karma and our relationship to uh, karma, which really points uh, to um, your ethical stance in the world. Uh, one of the ways um, that we, we tend to uh, consider uh, Karma is that uh, good karma is when we get the things that we want and bad karma is when we don't get the things that we want. And this isn't necessarily a good gauge of what uh, is good karma and what is bad karma. Um, When we think about equanimity in relationship to that, then the craving, aversion, and unconsciousness arises when uh, the events that arise in the present moment aren't actually what we want necessarily or aren't in line with what we want. And so we have a either a, a craving for something different than what is. We have an aversion to what's happening or we can't uh, deal with it at all. So we space it out. Um, I've, I've had a lot of talk uh, discussions with uh, Dan about this um, uh, and uh, he supports this position that I tend to take along this line, which is, if you live an ethical life, then the things that happen are in the range of good karma, whether they're the things that you want or you don't want. Um, and how does that land for you? Um, one of the things that I that found was really illustrative of this for me was that I've been working for quite a long time to try and open a meditation center, and we got very close uh, in December of 2019 of opening the center, and then there was a, a bunch of things that got in the way of that happening. Uh, and this is, uh, I found it to be very distressing because I'd spent years working at trying to get this to happen. And then, uh, if you may remember it, in March, uh, COVID hit. And had I been able to force uh, the center to open at that time, we would have gone bankrupt very quickly because COVID would have restricted people's ability to attend the center. And so uh, it w- was very reminiscent of the, the story of the farmer and the horse. Do you know the story I'm talking about? A farmer has a horse which he uses to plow his fields, and it's in, he's poor, and it's really his only valuable possession. And 
uh, one morning he comes out and goes to the corral to find the horses missing. And uh, his neighbors come by and they say, what terrible luck you have. You have the worst luck out of all of us. And the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Three or four days later, the, the horse returns with three wild horses. And when he comes out in the morning, there are four horses in the corral and his neighbors come by and say, you have the best luck. You have the best luck out of all of us. And the, the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Uh, the next day, his eldest son goes out to try and break one of the new horses. The horse throws him and he breaks his leg. And the neighbors come by and they say, you have the worst luck out of all of us. Out of all of us together, your luck is the worst. And the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? And then a few days later, a warlord comes through the town and he conscripts all of the able-bodied oldest sons to go to war, but because the farmer's son has a broken leg, he's left behind. And so the neighbors come by and say, you have the best luck out of all of us. Out of all of us, your luck is the best. And the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? So in each of these moments, when the present moment unfolds before you and you have this whole range of choices that you could pick, um, can you tune into this uh, understanding of well, wanting things, wanting some things, not wanting some things, and uh, how that uh, view of craving or that view of aversion or simply not being interested in what's happening enough to really engage the present moment um, and separate it for, as a reflection of what actually is happening. Um, and then pull back into this uh, understanding of the nature of um, making the decision as you enter the path to live in an ethical way. And what does that actually mean to you? What is it to be uh, uh, take an eth ethical stance in the world that we live in? What do you think? So usually with householders, we have the precepts we take of the practice of not causing harm through uh, killing. Jake, did you have a thought? <laughs> well, something I read in this, can you hear me okay? Can you hear yeah. me? Speak? Okay. Something I read in the suttas which stood out to me is there's a number of uh, descriptions of the path, sometimes spoken in metaphor or in kind of sequential order, where uh, virtue is described as emerging out of sense restraint. And I thought, I just thought that was interesting because you don't see that in the typical presentations of, of Dhamma, that, that virtue is actually this quality of the mind that arises out of being restrained to craving and aversion. It's not necessarily something that's otherwise constructed. I just I didn't want to put that out there. So I guess to me, then virtue means having a mind that's restrained to craving and aversion in, in the present moment. And is that the same as coming into equanimity? I think so. I, I think that's equanimity is a, definitely a strong factor in that. 
And how does that relate to guarding the sense gates? Well, I think when the the sense stores are are sort of comprehended with awareness and equanimity in the present moment, there's this automatic sense of um, kind of pulling back from grasping that otherwise would just one isn't mentalizing that one is grasping all the time right but when there's no when there's an awareness of that there's just this automatic there's a different course of action yeah yeah we're quite in line in our thinking around that um is that making sense uh coming into to uh, being present into the experience uh, of what's actually happening and then um, being able to mentalize uh, mentalize is a good word what actually is happening and what our reactions to it our conditioned responses to it are uh, so that we're then free to uh, make the skillful intention and take a skillful action in response to the conditions of the present moment and when you find yourself uh, mindless and caught up in the the, the the content of all of it, then you're uh, less likely to monitor those things and then respond. Nat, did you you unmuted? Did you want to say something? Uh, I didn't realize I was un- unmuted. So sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> no, I've got nothing good to add to anything. I'm happy to listen. <laughs> okay. Perfect. I often uh, prefer the just listening, except I'm in the wrong role for that tonight. Uh, Christian? Uh, I don't know how to to ask a narrow question around this, but if if we were, if we found out that we were in like apocalyptic times, hypothetically, what you know, what maybe, do you mean like climate change? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe maybe the sky the was pandemic. on fire or something. <laughs> um, I understand maybe that has something to do with the, the the bodhisattva vow or something, but you know, it seems like you have you have different choices. Like I don't know if equanimity means you just go about your sort of day-to-day, or if that means you try and find the most skillful way to see if you can drop everything else and and end this you know this crisis that might kill us all um yeah so the traditional phrase is things are just as they are things are impermanent joy and sorrow arises and passes away so this is an acknowledgement of uh, impermanence and then and that the conditions are as they are. Things are just as they are. Things are impermanent. Joy and sorrow arise and pass away. All beings are the heirs of their intentions and actions. Uh, my joy and sorrow, your joy and sorrow, depend upon uh, intentions and actions, not on wishes. So doesn't, is that, do you think that really holds up? Like, am I, or maybe, Maybe. <laughs> How is it different than that? Well, okay, so maybe maybe the exact phrasing is tripping me up, but if if it could be said that I'm responsible somehow for my own karma, 
then that doesn't get to that I was born into a whole world. Uh, I'm swimming in I'm swimming in all kinds of karma and and my contribution is small but maybe I can contribute in a good or bad way and but you know I'm you know I'm in an ocean of of karma that's not I'm not really responsible for in a sort of temporal sense. So we also come into the understanding of uh, multiple lives, reincarnation. Um, there's there's not so much emphasis on a collective karma, uh, depending on which lineage you're in. Um, so, but I think that in, in in when we talk about this in terms of attachment and also Western psychology, we have the idea that there's a single life that we're born into, and uh, particularly with an attachment focus, when you're looking at how uh, the conditions of your early childhood experience affected you uh, and created uh, really the, the being that you are, um, what was uh, your karmic responsibility when you were uh, six days old or three weeks old or 10 months old? When you were taking in these experiences, you obviously at that age don't have much in the way of a a cognitive uh, ability to interpret these things and then uh, make intentions and actions. And yet we still respond to the reactivity of the present moment. And we make choices about how to respond to them. Uh, we make intention and take action. And then the, 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 the fruits of those actions come back at us. <clears throat> Um, I think that really how I resolve this in my own way is to not know the answer. Um, I know that uh, I was in a, I was sitting uh, uh, years ago uh, at, uh, against the stream and there was a, a very senior monk teaching and uh, some uh, uh, woman raised her hand and said that she had been uh, sexually abused from the time she was an infant and into uh, her adolescence and that she wanted to understand how uh, what happened to, uh, what how to come into an understanding of what uh, the <clears throat> Uh, the karmic consequences of that were, and the the monk said that he didn't understand why people have such a hard time understanding this, that uh, she had obviously done terrible things in her previous lives, and that th this was the outcome of that. But But that doesn't make any sense to me at all, because how can you understand the complexity of of, of an accumulation of actions that would lead to that. So I, I find myself rejecting that I, uh, understanding of it. Um, that direct cause and effect where you're signing, assigning a narrative to it uh, doesn't make sense to me. Um, Jake? What, what, what about the narrative 
even though it is a narrative, but it's really stripped away of um, kind of story making. But the idea that distinguishing between karma and vipaka, you know, the result of the result of karma, we would call vipaka, and distinguishing karma and vipaka in in the way that understanding vipaka would be the the six sense bases as they currently arise in the present moment. And kamma would be the intention towards it, whatever the intention towards the six sense basis in the present moment is. How, how is that for you? Or how, um, is, that, is that something that you can agree with? Um, it is. So vipaka would always be uh, you know, in the present moment experience, we would be experiencing the six sense bases that are the result of past conditions. Right. And then how would you tie that into the experience of self? Well, self is a, is, is a, is a thought form. It's a conceptual ideation that arises in conjuncture with the mind base in the present moment. So I guess, uh, you know, how one relates to their own mind in the present moment would distinguish what type of self-experience would be arising. For instance, uh, if I don't feel good about myself, in the present moment, and I have an unconscious negative bias towards the present moment experience, and a negative uh, sense of self would come up, and that would color my perception of the world and the relationships. But if I have a, a positive sense of self, or I feel good, and I have a good sense of self-esteem in the present moment based on a, a positive volition towards the mind, then there would be uh, like a positive and more open, wholesome orientation towards the world. Does that, so, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. The, um, when I, one of the things that happens, I think, is that the sense of self arises and we become identified with the sense of self. And then we get trapped in this limited, this limited container which is really like a little pressure cooker of suffering. And if you can come out of that and then be in awareness and hold the experience of that, there's very little suffering and you see the arising and the, the passing of these experiences uh, differently. And because you don't get caught up in uh, the uh, identification with the experience of self, uh, your capacity for volition is different. Uh, and that you have the capacity then to take more skillful uh, actions in response to whatever the conditions are. Is this making sense? Um, <clears throat> do you notice when you're caught up in the experience of self and you're trapped? And do you notice when you're not caught up in the experience of the sense of self or the, the sense of self isn't present? Um, and how much uh, capacity did you have to move in and out of that? One of the things about the sense of self that's uh, uh, interesting to notice is that it's a, if we were to talk about it in a Western sense, a gist, 
an algorithm, a formula that creates the experience of self that arises in the present moment and is conditioned. And depending on the quality of that working model, what what's, it's made out of in order for it to arise, you can have a positive experience or a negative experience. If you have a lot of uh, negative uh, experience of the self, when it arises, uh, the, the present moment fills with the negative experiences associated with it. And uh, there can be an, an aversive reaction to that, which then becomes the root of uh, uh, self-hatred, self-difficulty with a sense of self, because each time you have an activation of self-experience, you're filled with these uh, negative uh, experiences. One of the reasons that we focus on the Brahma Viharas and the development of these positive states and then practice in relationship to the self is to associate these positive states with the experience of self so that when the self activity arises it's a pleasant positive experience and so uh, in that way makes it easier to become uh, 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 equanimous with it rather than uh, aversive to it or i would maybe there's a sense of craving uh, we look at dismissing people in that sort of inflation uh, they might want uh, they might be craving that that the high that comes from that uh, exaggerated um, positive experience of self how do you move out of that um, um, or how do you comprehend this uh, if your uh, main way of relating to things is in the self-experience which is this very limited way of being when uh, what Jake is talking about, this place of, the, of, of awareness and, and not being caught up in it. And if you don't have the capacity really to, to shift into this other place, uh, we always are trying to reflect through the self system to understand these things. And it's one of the reasons why it becomes uh, so difficult it's also one of the reasons why it's difficult to explain because you can be in the experience of awareness where all of this makes perfect sense and is easy and then you're uh, trying to strip it down and compact it in such a way that it can then be explained uh, the, uh, to uh, the self-experience that would then understand it. Is that making sense? Whereas if you experience it, uh, and the the wisdom mind knows it that makes perfect sense and then you have to come into this place trying to explain it to the uh, limited identity uh, particularly if the limited identity is conditioned in, in a way that it's it's constantly in a negative state right is, is that making sense christian is there a mentalization aspect to that because um I would imagine that even people that have never meditated have experienced no self states, but they might not be aware of those. Whereas someone who undergoes a big training in meditation, you know, they realize they're having no self states or maybe my premise is wrong. No, I, I think that, it, that all of the states that are described typically in meditation are fairly ordinary states. And that people have them, they just don't recognize them. Um, but but why do we distinguish uh, kind of globally between self and no self states? In terms of why don't we 
it seems like it never gets brought into the conversation that self states are also not self by nature. The nature of self states right. is not self. <laughs> like all states of everything that's ever happening at every moment is not self, but that doesn't invalidate the real importance of having a wholesome, coherent sense of self. Right. Because just something I found so interesting from learning about uh, your teaching and attachment, investigating it myself, was there's a way of meditating where you regard all phenomena as not self. And that's that it seems to me like that's really a in, enduring, coherent truth. But by regarding all phenomena as not self, it doesn't necessarily at all change this kind of underlying uh, habitual pattern to relate to the self states in a negative uh, judgmental or hurtful way. So that's what the attachment work has really brought to me is opening my eyes to the idea that, you know, it's so important to relate to self states in a positive, healthy way. Right. If you've sat with Shinzen for a long time, he describes it as the coming and going from the self state with no preference. Uh, if you were, if you've been around uh, long enough and you sat with the Sadaki Roshi, uh, one of my favorite metaphors that he used was that my job is a travel agent taking you effortlessly from heaven to hell. Uh, so he would uh, equate hell as the self-state and heaven as the uh, the non-self-state. But that's that's really messed up. <laughs> that's really messed up when you think about it. Wait, I, I, can you hear me? Because yes. th th that's really messed up to equate the self-state with hell. That's a real misunderstanding. That's a real problem. Because we all live in the self-state habitually, you know, the, right. the majority of our waking lives. And if we think that that's hell, we're really harming ourselves and we're developing a negative judgment against the natural phenomena of our body and mind. So that's not an attachment informed perspective. Right. Um, many of us experience the, the, the sense of self as hell in the beginning, and then we work toward this process of coming into a place where we just see it as an activity. Um, Shinzen sometimes describes it as a, a useful organizing principle of experience. Uh, Dan, uh, you know, teaching more, uh, teaching from the Tibetan uh, perspective is you, you just shift out into awareness and the self-activity arises and passes in the same way that all sensing experience arises and passes without a, a particularly, uh, a more particular emphasis on it. It's just another activity that arises and, ha and passes, which uh, produces no suffering. <laughs> mm. um, so uh, when we come uh, to practice this, uh, uh, we're usually coming in through the self-experience and coming in from the experience of suffering that the self-experience uh, uh, causes us, and we we have not a lot of agency in moving in and out of the uh, self experience. Uh, Shinzen described that early on in uh, in my sitting with him as 
uh, you have a garden surrounded by a wall. Outside of the wall is a jungle, and inside the wall is an is a highly manicured garden, and there's a gate. And the idea is to be able to move effortlessly through the gate uh, into the manicured garden of self, and then out into the the jungle of just uh, beingness. And that sometimes uh, uh, you can get trapped, uh, and you can get effectively trapped on either side of the gate. If you get trapped on the self side, then that there's a lot of suffering. But if you get trapped on the uh, the the wild side then there's no way to form a sense of self so there's no way to interact uh with skill in in the the householder's life or in, in interaction with uh, other people but so we're why, i mean i mean but why would it be so bad to be trapped in your home with a nice garden if you have, if you know, if you, if you, if you, if you take care of your yard and your garden and you can get everything you need there, you can grow flowers and vegetables and everything. It's great. But if it's just like old dump trucks and garbage and like all of this stuff, then we think it's so bad. We think it's terrible. We have to get out of it. We have to get away from it, but we, we have to, it's, it's just such an interesting conversation to see how like this this whole dialogue is is changing through the attachment metacognition right. form perspective if you can come into this place of a, a sense of security and you can address the con conditioning that leads to uh, insecure or disorganized attachment uh, then the the experience of self um, the experience of self uh, causes less and less suffering and then you can just be in this place it does produce uh, the same uh, conditioned life uh, and then this uh, deeper understanding of the impermanent nature even of the the body that you live in and that coming and going and all of that stuff aging <sighs> How is everybody? Good enough? So uh, one of the other aspects of uh, equanimity in, in the Brahma Viharas is the understanding of your relationship to other people and other people's uh, karma, other people's intentions and actions. Uh, this can become particularly sticky when it's uh, uh, people that are close to us or and uh, particularly sticky around our children if we have them. Um, sometimes wanting to take on uh, the, the uh, or uh, uh, take on the outcomes. Um, moving out of the, uh, the experience of, of uh, just the being in the uh, being in the the experience and then seeing the uh, 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 consequences uh, particularly in, in in relationship with other people um, how do you take care of people in such a way that they're free to explore in whatever they, way they want to and collect the consequences of the actions that they take and then you not then be filled with 
craving, aversion, or unconsciousness around uh, what those um, uh, actions and outcomes might be. How do you stay in, in balance with that as part of this? It's easy to um, become attached in that sense uh, to uh, um, connection to people and then uh, worry about uh, preserving or keeping the the uh, connection uh, it's very it can be very frightening to be in the world and have a sense of being alone and without anyone that might help uh, help you um, this is uh, related to uh, uh, attachment conditioning of course secure people tend to think of, think of themselves uh, as um, connected to people and that the connections are stable and reliable um, but they also tend to think that there are lots of people available that they could connect to so that the the loss of a connection is uh, not necessarily catastrophic painful and unwanted but not necessarily catastrophic and as you move out of secure attachment into insecure attachment or disorganized attachment uh, the the uh, the difficulty in not clinging to uh, relationships or social position or places becomes harder and harder to do. And so part of the suffering that comes from insecure attachment or disorganized attachment comes from the, the, the uh, reluctance to uh, uh, accept the nature of impermanence. And this uh, grasping or this need to control so that that you can create a, a sense of uh, safety around that. Um, dismissing people tend to think of themselves as uh, great, not just capable, but great. And they tend to devalue everyone else and think of them as less than. It's the way that they regulate that uh, abandonment terror. I would be in a collaborative relationship with you and I would treat you as an equal if you were uh, capable of it, but since you're not capable of it, I won't. Um, I, it doesn't matter whether you leave me or not because you're not important. And so I don't have to, I don't have to risk uh, attaching to somebody who would be important that I would experience the loss of. So their view is that they're great and everybody else isn't. So secure people think of themselves as capable and they think of the world as filled with people who would be happy to be in relationship to them and meet their needs. Dismissing people think of themselves as great, um, uh, so great in fact that they don't need to collaborate in relationship that they can just transact it and take what they want. But preoccupied people think of themselves as incapable and if they can just get somebody to take care of them, they'll be all right. So they see everybody else as capable and themselves as incapable. And disorganized people think of themselves as uh, incapable and they think of everybody else as dangerous or hostile. So the only uh, 
only attachment outcome that creates that double whammy of I'm incapable and actually people are dangerous and I should stay away from them is the disorganization. Um, hey, George, can I ask a quick question? What is, sure. what do you mean by capable? Uh, I mean, I know capable, what that word means, what you mean by it in this context. Capable of getting your needs met, capable of meeting the needs of other people. Okay, so if it's you, not like broad sense of arrogance, it's just that specific definition that you just gave. Yeah. If you think that you're capable of, of meeting the needs of someone else and other people are uh, are able to meet your needs, then you could envision being in a collaborative relationship. But if you think of yourself as incapable of meeting your own needs or the needs of someone else, then you uh, come into a place where you think that your needs simply will not be met. And you, instead of trying to get the needs met, uh, accept them not being met. Okay, thank you. So, yes, Jake. So is that like a cornerstone of being able to move from insecure into secure attachment perspective is seeing oneself as being capable to meet others' needs and also being able to trust that others will meet your needs. Is that, right. that seems like a real kind of cornerstone of, of it. The, and the, like, the part about being able to meet your own. Yeah. So if you look at the development of this, all of us start as autoregulators, just really wrapped up in ourselves. And then between, say, two and... Um, so, sorry, between five and eight months, the brain develops enough that we can actually recognize that other people come and take care of us. And if they're reliable enough in coming, we move from the orientation of auto-regulating to the orientation of externally regulating. We begin to rely on somebody else regulating our experience. If they come reliably enough, we begin to count on the availability of the person and we move into a sense of security that they're going to be there when we need them. And that opens up the, the capacity to collaborate with them. So what that means is that you're free to express yourself authentically and what you need. You're communicating in a way that can be understood. Uh, it's being mirrored back to you so that the, the uh, communication is validated and then uh, the, the need is met. So you develop this sense that if I express myself authentically in the moment, it will be received uh, in a good way, I'll be understood, and then my, my needs will be met. That begins this collabor collaboration where you're willing to express what your needs are and somebody else meets the needs. And then as you uh, continue to develop, what you begin to do is take in the way that they regulate you so that you begin to have a sense that when they're not there, I know what to do to regulate myself. So you have that experience. And then uh, at around 18 months or so, uh, when you begin to be more mobile, you, you also, uh, your brain develops enough to begin to recognize that actually they're different than you are. They're separate from you. And, and then you learn that they have an agenda and that you have an agenda which opens up 
what we euphemistically call the terrible twos, uh, where the child is insistent that they don't have to go along with with the uh, agenda, that they, they can have their own agenda. And then there's a period of negotiation. And that really is where the 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 capacity and the the instruction and collaboration really uh, flowers where uh, the child understands that they have an agenda that their caregivers have an agenda and that you can negotiate and keep each of the agendas without one or the other having to be uh, devalued or eliminated then you have a sense of of safety a, a sense of security and being related in relationship to other people um, and then that of course opens up your uh, the the support and encouragement of you to then explore what your agenda is um, and then what's valuable to you that doesn't always happen <laughs> you may have noticed <laughs> Um, so uh, views, you could call these views, attachment views. Um, do you think of yourself as capable then of pursuing your exploration and capable of uh, taking care of yourself and capable of forming the relationships that you need to support you so that you are uh, able to uh, go deeply into the things that have meaning to you or, or does the, the views limit that? possibilities so that you don't you're, you aren't actually uh, free to do it because you can't see the possibility of it and, uh, not so much whether you have the innate capacity to do it or not it all making sense um, when we talk about the long goal of uh, meditation which is this deep understanding into the nature of uh, the true nature of things uh, any of these uh, uh, adversive attachment conditions uh, can interfere with your capacity then to explore and pursue it. And so then you get stuck in these uh, cycles of not really being able to uh, discover what it is that you need. Well, making sense. Um, what if we do some practice? Um, Uh, we're going to do equanimity practice. The phrase for equanimity is uh, is longer than the other ones. I still teach it as a, a, a jhana practice, but the phrase is longer. So you may notice if you don't, if you haven't memorized the phrase, that it, it it's going to take some um, more effort to repeat it. So you might want to just take a piece of it and repeat a piece of it instead of the whole thing. Uh, things are just as they are. Things are impermanent. Joy and sorrow arise and pass away. All beings are the heirs of their intentions and actions. My joy and my sorrow depend upon my intentions and actions, not upon the wishes of others for me. Things are just as they are. Things are impermanent. Joy and sorrow arise and pass away. All beings are the heirs of their intentions and actions. My joy and my sorrow depend upon my tensions and actions not upon the wishes of others for me. Is that all making sense? So go ahead and take your meditation posture.
So um, what's coming up around here is in September, I think in about two weeks, we're starting another level two. There's a few spaces left in that, I think. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can register on the website. Um, we're going to do another level one, I think, in November. That should be up on the website soon. Um, in December, we have a retreat. Right now, it's scheduled as an in-person retreat at the Seven Circles Center. I think there's 10 spaces left in that. Um, we're obviously having to keep an eye on the, the Delta situation, but uh, I'm thinking that if everybody's vaccinated, it, we'll be able to do it. Um, that takes us to the end of the year. This class is continuing uh, on Thursday nights. Um, I offer the teaching uh, freely, but I do hope you'll make a donation. There's a link to make a donation on our website. Um, I offer the teaching freely and then uh, you make a donation which supports me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. And so that's very useful. Uh, I appreciate your coming. Thank you so much. And uh, Christian? George, I have a Zen question that I think relates to our meditation. Uh, so, so a householder with secure attachment goes and visits uh, a monastery to to do like a retreat for 10 days. And the monastery is just like a couple streets down from the red light district. And on the first day of the 10 day <laughs> retreat, the scientists reveal that uh, an asteroid is heading towards the earth. It's just gonna blast the whole earth to smithereens in seven days. So what, what are the householders and the monks, what does the householder and the monks do? Um. <laughs> I'm still unclear of what the proximity of the red light district has to do oh, with just that. A big city. <laughs> it's a big dirty city. Um, if it were me, I would just uh, go uh, and uh, thank all of the people who I love uh, for uh, uh, their kind care. Okay. Um. <laughs> I, I, you might be enlightened now. I don't know if that. <laughs> um, you know, we're all going to face that moment. And what do you do with what do you do when uh, it's clear that uh, th that this incarnation is ending? And my sense is that uh, you thank everybody that that helped. Uh, so good enough. Thank you. We'll see you soon. <laughs>